Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Such enthusiasm on this Friday the 13th of December with a pending snowstorm this weekend. Lots of energy. So we are particularly delighted today to have Elizabeth Talbot be our Grand Rounds speaker. There are no financial uh, potential conflicts of interest to disclose and she's going to be introduced to us this morning by Brian Marsh, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Section Leader in Infectious Disease International Health. So Brian, come tell us a little bit about Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Rich. Um, so uh, delighted this morning to have our own Dr. Elizabeth Talbot presenting Medical Grand Rounds. You can see the title up there. Um, Elizabeth has been with us now for what, getting on about 10 years, I think, almost exactly, 2003. Um, so <laughs> Elizabeth uh, did her training first at UMDNJ and then ongoing from there at Duke in the CDC where she was uh, in the uh, an EIS officer. They say arrived here in 1990, uh, sorry, 2003. It's not that old. And uh, <laughs> her work here uh, really revolves around uh, public health very broadly. And I say that uh, because there are two big realms of her activities. Uh, one represented today by this talk is the deputy state epidemiologist, a position she's held since arriving here. Uh, you'll hear more about what that means in a second. And then the second aspect of her public health interests being in global health. And you'll hear that represented next week when she comes back for another end rounds. We've given her a busy month here. Um, she'll be presenting that with uh, Dr. Lisa Adams, also from our infectious disease group, focused, I believe, primarily on the work in Rwanda. Um, Elizabeth's uh, international work is uh, broad. Currently, the two uh, geographic areas she's most involved with are Rwanda and Haiti. And, she leaves on Sunday for Haiti if the snowstorm doesn't prevent her. And uh, if the planned coup in Haiti that we hear about uh, also doesn't intrude on her departure. If it doesn't intrude on her departure, we don't. We hope it won't intrude on her return. Otherwise, Grand Rounds next week will be <laughs> challenge for Dr. Adams. So always uh, exciting. So um, uh, Elizabeth's a great member of the group, incredibly productive, uh, contributes uh, well beyond uh, her 1.0 FTE. She's sort of up there at about 1.5, I think, for the volume of her activities, uh, including, of course, clinical work. And at Dartmouth as a, a member of the infection prevention group. Um, uh, and in the interim, somehow she finds time to publish extensively. Her CV is very impressive for uh, an associate professor. So Elizabeth, I'll let you take over. How is that microphone going to work for everyone? Is it all right? Oh, to speak louder? Okay. Um, I am a low talker, so please do remind me if I start fading off. Um, so it's been somewhat um, counterintuitive for me that I've actually been looking forward to being here to share with you some of the experiences I have in Concord and, and beyond. I, um, like many of you, wear several different hats, and the deputy state epidemiologist hat is, is one that's not very well understood on this side of the state, I think. And, um, so part of this is to share my enthusiasm for public health. Um, you saw the objectives, but secretly I hope that you emerge from this feeling more partnering, feeling a better partnership with public health and, and enthusiasm for what we do. Um, <clears throat> so I had a very hard time choosing what events in the state are worthy of your outbreak um, updates here. So. Um, when I threw down um, the, these, I realized that this, these were somewhat atypical, and really uh, I, I threw down the salmonella because that's a bit more bread and butter, and will give you a sense of really what the day-to-day -day is. But the other events have been very un unprecedented, you know, just a tremendous effort and exhaustion of the limited resources we have at the state, and I think that are things that you have seen also in the press, and I provide a kind of an um, update from, from my perspective as a clinician here. 
So we have to start with some definitions so that we're on the same page to talk about the things that have happened. Um, I know you remember from most medical school days the difference between endemic, epidemic, and pandemic. So endemic is the rate at which disease circulates in a given jurisdiction. Epidemic simply means above that baseline rate, and pandemic means it's spreading over a larger geographic area. Um, I want to make the distinction between cluster and outbreak, because these are sometimes used interchangeably, but that's not appropriate. There is a distinction between these that I'd like to make with you. A cluster is a group of cases without a known common exposure, whereas an outbreak emerges when those cases become linked to a common exposure. So when we figure out where it's coming from, an outbreak becomes, a cluster becomes an outbreak, yeah? Also relevant are the elements uh, in this mode. So you're familiar with calling patients cases. This is the person with disease, but I want to um, also make the distinction between an index case and a source case. They may be one and the same, but often they're not. The index case is the first case that we see um, that clues us that something's going on, whereas the source case is the one that's propagating and needs control. Um, the agent is that which causes a disease, whether it's a virus or a bacteria or a prion or whatever. Um, mode of acquisition is how that agent is transmitted, and these are familiar terms to you, person to person, fomite, zoonotic, nosocomial. Um, the reservoir is where that agent is naturally found in our environment. And then a bridge host, which we'll talk about um, in one example, is when a host is infected with that agent until a more important, usually a human, uh, is infected with that, and the outbreak ensues. <coughs> All right, so clear terminology, we're on the same page. Excellent. Um, now I want to talk you through um, the 10 steps of an outbreak investigation. These are endorsed both by CDC and the World Health Organization, and I think I've shown them <laughs> even in this forum before. Um, I remind you they are not necessarily conducted in order. Um, they are not almost ever conducted one at a time or just once. Sometimes we need to go back over and, and redo. So um, we often have our outbreaks um, die out on step one. The least sexy of the um, steps in, in the process are to verify that index case. Um, next, we determine the extent. We try to find the link and establish that there is actually an outbreak. And in this era of resource limitation, we have to decide whether it's a priority for public health dollars to investigate further. Um, there's often times where there's not a control mechanism or it's not of severe enough uh, clinical impact that we, we investigate further. We construct hypotheses, we test those hypotheses um, with the hopes of controlling the outbreak. Um, reporting appropriately is, is a um, unique part of my job in Concord. Um, that is, we, we report to policymakers, um, the press, also to the patient, to the community at large, to the population, and to the clinicians who are engaged in care. Um, and then we, we need to keep stepping back and making sure that we've achieved control. We ensure control and we often use um, surveillance to do so. I want to illustrate this vo these vocabulary and these steps um, using something that's in the news regularly, in part because I think that there are a lot of features about this uh, outbreak that um, use these terms and illustrate these terms, but also because it's probably something that um, you yourselves would like to know a bit more about. It's something we're watching very closely in Concord um, and, and buffing up our preparedness activities because uh, this is one to watch. Huh? So um, a cluster and an agent. Um, astute clinicians recognize two index cases of severe respiratory illness. I'm not exactly sure what caught their attention that this would warrant uh, such an aggressive investigation, but indeed, um, in June 2012 and September, um, two persons succumbed to uh, severe respiratory illness. Um, they, there was investigation on, on the level of step two, investigating the extent of the cluster, and right now we stand at 163 cases with 71 deaths. This is an outbreak because it's linked by geography, and the agent has been identified by sequencing as a first time um, identified coronavirus. Um, and it's been named, as you know, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, or MERS-CoV. So the coronaviruses cause lots of different diseases, everything from the common cold to SARS. And you're not surprised to know that 
um, CNN's headline elected to note the relationship to, to SARS rather than the common cold, um, because that's a better headline, right? Um, but in fact, the phylogeny suggests that this coronavirus is much more closely related to coronaviruses that are found in bats. And, and this kind of information informs um, the investigation of the, the source and, and the host. So what's the reservoir? Here we are constructing and testing our hypotheses, which are outbreak steps six and seven. Um, in recent uh, data, uh, a very interesting study where the investigators went into the community of one of the index cases who succumbed and collected bats from the orchard and from the uh, workplace, uh, near the workplace of, of the, the, the index case. And they found fragments of the MERS-CoV genome. So it, it, I love the headline, bat out of hell, Egyptian chew bat made under the MERS virus. So, you know, really, um, <laughs> So is, is this the end of the story with regards to the mode of transmission? However, we know people don't have a lot of contact with bats. They often wear blue gloves when they handle them. You know, so, so this is not the place that we have intimate contact and, and humans are getting infection. So we've been on a search for the bridge host. Yeah. Um, <laughs> most people don't have contact with bats. And two new studies looking for the bridge host have found that camels are widely infected in Oman, which is a country. Oops, sorry. In Oman, which is a country that um, has uh, uh, MERS-CoV cases, 50 of 50 tested camels have um, antibodies to MERS-CoV. Huh. And in the Canary Islands, geographically um, farther, 16 of 105 are positive. So this looks like it might be. Um, uh, this, this guy might have something to do with the whole thing. But what is the mode of, transmission, of acquisition, and how do you think about this? We know that there's inefficient person-to-person -person transmission. MERS-CoV has spread in hospitals. There's been some um, pretty large outbreak uh, within uh, hospitals where the patients uh, have been. Uh, there's disease transmission to patients and, and also among healthcare workers, which is always rather ominous. Most contacts, however, are healthy. So how is it zoonotic? Uh, bats to camels to people beyond, we're not sure. We have to keep watching this one. And this is one of the functions of public health is, is trying to figure out what our risk is and how we should be prepared for it. Um, if you are interested in additional uh, updates, they come regularly. And I think it with most credibility from the World Health Organization, which is the lead investigative um, agency right now. Um, <clears throat> so here's your bread and butter outbreak from 2013. Um, Salmonella typhimurium. We do, we do a lot of this sort of thing, and, and this marches us through in a, in a kind of still introductory way, if you'll indulge. Oh, wait, I got to show you here. Um, so, so this picture is a little dog in the big city, and I've put in little, little dog in the big city conquered. This is a conquered relevant outbreak. So um, our cluster identification occurred um, midsummer, June 24th, and we, um, through routine surveillance, identified two matching Salmonella typhimurium cases. <coughs> We verified these cases and, and did confirm that they matched at least by PFGE. However, this match is a common strain in the US and also even in New Hampshire, so we weren't quite sure what to make of it. When eight more cases had been identified by August 8th, um, it was clear that we needed to figure out whether they were linked. And um, the strains were sent to CDC for a more discriminative, discriminating um, fingerprinting method called MELVA. Uh, and, and they confirmed that they were identical. Um, within short order, we had nine additional PFGE cases, and these were all clustered geographically in, in the Concord area. So um, <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. You're not like insulted by my you know silly slides. Thank you. Um, so our cases were interviewed to generate hypotheses. Um, I want to let you know that we have a standardized food um, questionnaire for such outbreaks. And it includes about 200 food items that are commonly consumed. And a salmonella questionnaire includes things that you'd expect, like chicken and eggs and other places we know that um, salmonella has been recovered. It also includes exposure to pets, pet food, and pet activities. We got a signal very early in this investigation um, where 13 of uh, the, hold on one second. Let me see if it, yeah, it goes away. OK. So um, 13 of 14 of our cases uh, had contact with dogs. Nine of 13 reported exposure to pet treats. So 
this should make you ask, well, what's the baseline? What's the endemic exposure to these things? And, and I wanted to share with you that there's a, a really cool national survey that asks people, do you have exposure to this? Do you have a lizard? Do you have a fish? Do you have a cupcake? I don't know what. And, and so we find that um, this signal was statistically significant compared to what the average American is exposed to. Did you know 61% of, of, of um, Americans report contact with a dog within the previous week? 16% report uh, contact to a pet treat. And who's doing these surveys? I don't know. But, um, these are helpful to us. They help us. This is your tax dollars helping us. Um, <laughs> letting us know that this is our signal and we have to go here. We have to pursue this. The source turned out to be chicken jerky. We did this by identifying one case of interest who was a case, a patient, a person, um, who, who made their own pet food and purchased treats from a local pet store. And that pet store confirmed they only sold one kind of treat. So this is a huge clue, right? This is falling on a weekend. Over that weekend, we developed a pet treat-specific questionnaire and administered it in a rolling way as patients were um, available. Six of seven confirmed they had purchased chicken jerky. Um, eventually, it was 33 of 36 cases. Uh, and we were able to uh, initiate control by product recalling. Um, I just think that um, the review of jerky manufacturing shows one of the themes that I'd like to try to pull, pull from this presentation, which might otherwise <laughs> seem a little disjointed. Um, <laughs> so we reviewed the manufacturing. Uh, the, the, jerk, the chicken was purchased from a chain grocery store and dehydrated at 160 degrees for 30 hours which is below the recommended salmonella killing temperature of 165. So we went in and um, collected jerky from cases from the, the manufacturing home and, and swabbed the environment. And boy, we found it everywhere. Um, so this is the manufacturing center uh, in someone's home. This is the dehydrator that was not uh, set to the correct temperature. These are the storage bins. Uh, and, and basically, everything was positive for this exact strain. So this is a example of a bread and butter um, uh, outbreak for us where we eventually had 36 confirmed cases, seven very probable cases with a high rate of hospitalization, higher than you'd expect with salmonella. So this, this was um, a high impact on the community down south. Um, this is the largest pet treat-associated salmonella outbreak in the US. There had been three previous, but just a few patients. Um, and this outbreak is caused by under-processing chicken. Uh, cross-contamination, et cetera. The one point I'd like to draw to your attention is, are you surprised to know pet treat manufacturing is not regulated in New Hampshire? Um, you know, I'm, I'm forever steep on the learning curve, finding out what legislation we have in the US to control public health. And, and I think that I, I just want to, <laughs> in the immortal words of John Stark. So you know, this is John Stark in 1809 saying, live free or die, death is not the worst of evils. Salmonella is not the worst of evils either. Um, but this is thematic for us in public health that we have very little jurisdiction, sorry, regulation of processing at all. This is a theme. So um, uh, yeah, in, at the health department, we sometimes say, feel free to die. Um, so I feel compelled to review with you the hepatitis C outbreak investigation. I know that Sharon Alroy Price uh, presented to you a, a very elegant, um, thorough investigation report um, through this grand round. So I won't duplicate a lot of that. But assuming some of you have forgotten or you want to hear it from another perspective, I'm going to blow through the beginning of this to, to put us on the same page. It was May 15th, deep sigh. Exeter Hospital reported appropriately, you know, admirably, that they were aware that there were four patients who were recently diagnosed with hepatitis C virus, and they weren't aware of risk factors. So um, step one, we verified those index cases. They were true, new hepatitis C virus cases, um, and they had no apparent risk. Step three, you know, again, not in order, OK, don't panic. Um, we established this was an outbreak. Indeed, they were all associated with the cardiac catheterization lab, the CCL. Uh, step five, the descriptive epidemiology was concerning for the fact these were three patients the fourth was a patient, but he was also a healthcare worker in, in the same setting. These genetically matched completely. There was no doubt these were the same strain. And then step eight, just part one, controlling the epidemic. First, we closed the, the CCL. Um, so clearly, this was a nosocomial HCV outbreak from, from a very early stage. In constructing the hypotheses, we looked for the usual suspects, 
contaminated equipment, single dose vial used for multiple patients, um, but it quickly emerged we were looking at narcotic diversion. Testing this hypothesis uh, was fairly easy in that interviews one-on-one -on -one with healthcare workers with whom this uh, fourth index case worked quickly showed everyone had a lot of concerns about his behavior. Coming to work obviously impaired, sometimes foaming at the mouth was a phrase we had heard, showing up at work when he wasn't supposed to be there, not willing to leave, et cetera. There were a lot of clues in the early um, interviews that happened. Um, and he was the only healthcare worker who was present for all the case procedures. I found it very interesting that in an extensive medical record review, this was not obvious. So in the procedure records, 17 of 32 of our cases had this healthcare worker as their technologist, yeah? But if you look at the work schedule and then the card key access to the cardiac catheterization lab, he was present 32 of 32. So for me, this was an example where medical record review was inadequate and we really had to go an extra mile and be present on site um, and, and, and look at, at various sources. Um, interestingly, too, of course, the outbreak started with his employment. You've probably seen something along these lines, but let me review with you that the green cases, yeah, you can see that color, right? I don't know what, what it looks like for you, but this probably represents the endemic rate of hepatitis C virus within the cardiac catheterization lab population. Um, the orange cases, it's hard to know what these represent. These are cases who had positive serology, but they had negative PCR, so we couldn't acquire their strain for typing, so we couldn't match them to the outbreak. Um, but the blue cases clearly matched the healthcare workers out uh, strain. So here is where he was hired. I know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna anticipate your question. What about this guy? I don't know. We have lost sleep about this guy, but he was hospitalized during the time of his employment. Yeah. So um, I think that you'll find this graph compelling. And if you don't, then I'm gonna give you some more interesting data to, to, to sway the jury, so to speak. Um, there were many discrepancies identified by medical record review with regards to procedures for narcotic access use and oversight thereof. Um, so there was an increased use of narcotic for um, cases, for procedures in this cardiac catheterization lab um, when this healthcare worker was employed. So the um, average procedure during the pre-employment period was about three quarters of a vial of fentanyl, yeah? And for all cases after his hire, there's a statistically significant increase in the consumption of fentanyl. But for our confirmed HCV cases, look at what happens. So this reflects not that the patients are narcotic, um, you know, whatever, resistant, but rather that this healthcare worker is stealing the fentanyl, giving them normal saline and, and requiring an increased use that is detectable by epidemiologic methods. Um, so, we had to determine the extent. This was a huge effort. We were not lying on the couch eating bonbons in Concord. Um, the, there were many whiteboards up on how do we establish these clinics to do testing. We certainly queried the existing surveillance systems to try to detect how many patients were associated with this outbreak, but we had to establish new HCV surveillance as well. Passive, we surveyed um, existing so we surveyed our laboratory partners and, and you to ask if you were seeing new cases that didn't have traditional risk factors. And then we set up these clinics where we tested a whole lot of people in a very short order. Um, our testing algorithm reflects the need to intersect public health and clinical medicine, that this was a complicated affair because serology is inadequate to identify recent transmission. So um, we did serology, we had to do PCR as well to attempt to link the patient to the source case. Um, and, and we attempted to um, identify directionality by something called quasi-species done by the CDC. This is because we quickly emerged this outbreak into a, a criminal investigation, right? So instituting control meant evidence, we needed evidence to control the healthcare worker who we thought was the source. He was denying, of course, maybe not of course, but he was denying um, and, and saying that he had acquired his hepatitis C virus at the, um, he, he got somehow infected the same way the patients did, but, but he, he, he was not admitting anything. So this became an unprecedented effort. I mean, I've never been involved with a criminal investigation like this before. Um, to understand this healthcare worker's movement nationally so that we could identify other people at risk um, and, and also events elsewhere that might implicate him 
as a source uh, for, for us here in New Hampshire. Um, we wanted to know, too, when he knew about his HCV status, um, because that has an implication as we're approaching somebody who's saying, I just got this infection. I don't know what you're talking about. So this is a disturbing timeline. And I think that you've probably heard bits and pieces of it. I won't go through it in all the gory detail, but use it to reflect that there was a lot of effort that was multi-state on, on uh, your own New Hampshire Health Department's effort. Um, I'll just highlight a few things I put in right here. But he started his career as a radiologic technologist back then. Even his initial application to licensure had um, not disclosed that he had had a DUI. Um, so some lack of. Um, you know, I don't know, verification happened when he was licensed. He worked in Michigan, and it was pretty quiet as far as we can tell, but things started ramping up here. He started working for a traveling agency, we'll call it Agency A, um, placed in a New York hospital, placed in a Pittsburgh hospital, but that ended quickly. He had an early termination from this hospital because he was found with a fentanyl syringe and then failed his drug test. But Agency A elected to employ him now at the Maryland hospital. Uh, he got a license in Maryland and, again, had multiple omissions, just blank spaces on his application that were not pursued and, and some falsifications that were not verified. Um, and they placed him in a, in a Maryland hospital. He, again, had an early termination because he falsified time records and forged his supervisor's signature. But they took him and placed him in an Arizona hospital. Uh, he got a license in, in Maryland, uh, went back to Maryland. Uh, he, again, had omissions and false answers, uh, not, not disclosing some of these other things that had happened to him. And, and then there's this really egregious thing that happened in Arizona where, um, yeah, at one point he was quit, but then the next hospital he worked at, he was found unresponsive in the restroom with a fentanyl syringe in his arm. He admitted to injecting, but claimed he had found the syringe. He was terminated, but the hospital didn't press criminal charges. They sent him on. He was relicensed in Arizona. Uh, went to a Pennsylvania hospital, a Kansas hospital, uh, and then eventually a new agency places him in Exeter Hospital in New Hampshire. He's hired as a permanent employee, and you know some of the rest of this. But I, I hope that this is shock and awe to you. There, there's a problem here, right? And when I say how did this happen, I don't mean scientifically. I mean ethically or existentially. Like This is stunning to me that this could happen. And I, I want you to know that he ultimately worked in 17 facilities, eight states, exposed more than 11,000 patients uh, to disease. 46 were confirmed that I know of. And he was charged with fraud fraudulently obtaining drugs and tampering with consumer product. He pled guilty and just two weeks ago was sentenced to 39 years in prison. So how do we prevent this from happening again? Um, there is a final uh, report led by Sharon Elroy Price with contributions from all of us who participated. Some broad strokes are we need to increase regulation and improve information sharing about allied healthcare workers. Um, we have Hospital Drug Diversion Task Force now federally in place with the right partners at the table, strengthening healthcare systems to promote prevention. Uh, sorry, please. Um, to prevent uh, to, to, and, and then to assure optimal response to healthcare outbreaks. So um, I think that. Um, this will not restore patient confidence. Let me just answer that question for you. And, and this, this was a huge hit to our credibility in delivery of safe healthcare. So quick on the heels of that statement, let me talk about fungal infections from compounded medications. The index case was reported by an astute clinician September 18th, 2012. He saw a case of Aspergillus fumigatus meningitis in a patient who was a normal host, except he had had a steroid injection several days before. Um, so coincidentally, uh, a couple of days later, Tennessee notified CDC about a very analogous case. Um, this cluster was confirmed um, uh, by September 29th. Uh, the CDC had queried the state jurisdictions. And I show here, for your amusement, I hope, the email with which the CDC uh, queried us. And, and I just I just love this. We realize it's late on Friday. You know, like, how often do we get like our announcements on late Friday, the Murphy's Law of Public Health? But but also it was really late on Friday in that we were just coming off the hepatitis C outbreak. We were just feeling a semblance of okay, let's get take care of everything else we've been neglecting for all these months. 
So just getting back to work and feeling as though we had this then fall on us. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, poor beavers, right? Poor beavers. <laughs> so um, we went quickly from a cluster to outbreak in this situation to the FDA did a site visit that revealed, you know, I, I put it proper because I was afraid this would be a legacy, but horrendous conditions at this institution that was making compounded medications. There was visible fungal contamination in sterile vials about to go out the door. And a veritable garden grew from unopened vials. And a lot of these I, I can't necessarily even pronounce. Okay, so the, this is a, a really scary event, very early on, ramping up. And our response was, was brisk. Um, we identified that um, only pain care center which is a, a company that has several offices shown here on this map of the southeast New Hampshire, uh, had received any of this recalled product. I was shoulder to shoulder with that team um, uh, here in Summersworth uh, over three days um, you know, that are very blurry. But we identified 752 patients who had received injections with this recalled product. Um, and we notified 100% of those patients in a very short order. And, and were immediately confronted with the challenge of this outbreak investigation because 51% reported that they were consistently symptomatic. They had headache, they had stiff neck, they had photophobia, and we were greatly challenged because many of these exposed patients, of course, received their injections in pain clinics, they have pre-existing pain conditions, and this really complicated our evaluation and ability to know who should go on to MRI, who should go on to LP, but this was a really exuberant effort and, and unprecedented coordination between public health and clinical medicine, where we set up um, mini rounds, fungal mini rounds, we call them, where we met with all the state um, uh, ID physicians who were evaluating and treating these dogs. 14 cases at the end of the day in New Hampshire met the case definition. That's not to say they really had it, but they met the uh, surveillance case definition. And, and in New Hampshire, you know, first in the nation, we were the only um, setting that was able to demonstrate a PCR positive joint infection with this exerohylum rostratum. <clears throat> the extent of the outbreak um, is, is simply shown with numbers, um, but the uh, suffering involved is, is very hard to quantify. At the end of the day, there's been 751 cases of fungal meningitis from this neck outbreak, 64 deaths, some probably coming yet, uh, and, and it involved 20 states. You see New Hampshire with our 14. Several states were very hit, were hit really hard. Tennessee, 148. Michigan, 244 cases. So um, the disease agents that were found in patients nationally, again, were a veritable um, garden, right? So, but exorohylum was something we had to hear about for the first time. So exorohylum rostratum was the species that was found in 141 cases. We've never seen this in humans before. It has never been documented in humans, but the genus itself, not rostratum, but the genus is a common mold in soil and on plants and warm humid communities, climates, um, and has been seen as a very rare cause of infection after um, environmental trauma or in severely immunocompromised patients. So we were steep on that learning curve again. Um, the biggest message here for me is that, um, again, we had a um, significant impact on our patient, our consumer confidence in the receipt of, of uh, safe healthcare, right? So there's many headlines along this line, but scant oversight of drug maker and fatal meningitis outbreak. Did you know that compounding pharmacies had no regulation before? I mean, I was, I was very surprised. And, and this has changed everything. So, so now we do have a regulatory capacity, and this is um, stepping up with, with regulation, with uh, uh, legislation to, to enforce it. Ready to move on to another unusual event, but it's pretty memorable to me, nosocomial risk of Crutzfeld-Jakob disease, CJD, during neurosurgery. The initial report to public health um, came August 16th, where an astute New Hampshire neurologist at the Catholic Medical Center reported um, th that he had a patient with suspect CJD. This was a 71-year-old teacher who had a four-month progressive dementia with some classic features of myoclonus, visual changes, and eventually obtundation. Um, the reason that this clinician was reporting to the health department was because he had a positive CSF tau and 14.33 protein, which is um, suggestive. We conducted an urgent review to identify possibly the possibility of nosocomial exposures from this patient to subsequent neurosurgical patients, and unfortunately discovered that this index patient had neurosurgery while symptomatic on May 24th. 
So backing up to what, what is CJD again? Uh, for me, it's something that seems like it's from outer space, but it's a progressive neurodegenerative prion disease, prion, that abnormal folding protein. It is uniformly fatal about four months after onset, well illustrated by what happened to our patient. Um, the endemic rate in the US is one per one million population, which means there's about 200 each year in the US, and we see about one case a year in New Hampshire. There are three forms that are relevant. Um, so sporadic is by far the majority of cases where it just happens. Familial, there's something genetic in 15% of cases. But where we are right now is talking about this acquired or iatrogenic form. It's extremely rare. And one of the challenges of this outbreak up front was that although there are many different kinds of prion disease, and we're here, most people were worried about this. So at the hospital, we were hearing a lot about mad cow disease, mad cow disease. That's, you know, obviously, you know, acquired by eating cows like that. Um, so this <laughs> is a difficult message um, to, to get straight in the beginning, for, even for our staff. You know, the, the, the not everybody is an ID doc or a clinician with the caliber here in this room. So, so this was a confusing place to understand about prions. So the risk of then this very rare iatrogenic form um, is only through three confirmed routes, contaminated extracts, grafts, or medical equipment. Extracts, especially pituitary hormone, have been documented. Grafts, especially dura matter, have been documented. Medical equipment, look at these numbers. So we're talking about a rare disease, a rare form, and a rare mechanism to, to deal with this outbreak. And, and um, this, this was challenging. But we stepped back to step one of outbreak investigations and um, thought about how do we confirm our index case? How do we know? So when you are attempting to diagnose CJD, it's done clinically by how the patient's presenting and whether you have any um, alternate diagnoses. MRI can be classic. EEG can be classic. Oh, wait, wait, I was going to show you an MRI that's classic um, with this uh, basal ganglia signal. Um, EEG. Can, can really help a lot if there's this bi or triphasic periodic shark wave. Um, and then there's this CSF tau protein in the 1433 flavor. Um, among dementia patients, so among the right population being tested, the positive predictive value of this test is only 73%. So not at all a confirmatory test, right? It's only confirmed, CJD is only confirmed by histology, <laughs> autopsy or biopsy. Um, and this shows a classic. Um, uh, histology where there's these big holes um, that, that gives it the name spongiform encephalopathy. So did we verify the index? We went through medical record review. He had his onset of illness April 1st. He was inpatient for all this time um, at CMC, and he did have his neurosurgery on May 24th while symptomatic. He had five CTs and seven MRIs that eventually evolved to a very classic appearance. He was in rehab. He had an EEG that wasn't quite classic. He was inpatient again two weeks. His CSF was sent August 3rd. And, and I hope that you might think with me, wait a second, why was his CSF sent for high suspicion CJD, but he wasn't reported until August 16th? This, this was a bit of a miss in my mind. Um, if you think strongly enough about CJD, that you send the, the, the sample to the CDC's prion center, then, then you should also probably in parallel call not probably. You should definitely call the health department um, at that time. And then only one day later, he expired in hospice. And, and this was a scramble um, that, that we had to divert that body then to the National Prion Center to get that histology. So we knew what we were dealing with. This was, uh, of course, a great misfortune for the family who had a lot of other plans for um, the celebration of this man's life. Um, so, so we were really in that unfortunate bad guy role um, in, in wanting to do this. So in our risk assessment, yes, he had neurosurgery. And here's where, again, the emperor kind of had no clothes to me. You know, I, I thought we would be able to identify what equipment had been used on him. But it turns out the hospital has two neurosurgery kits. Um, and they only know they used one of those on him. And they used a general surgery kit. These kits had all been appropriately sterilized. We reviewed that. Um, but this is inadequate to remove CJD. Um, we found pretty clearly instrument tracking is not routine. And even when it's done, it appeared not reliable. So we had to uh, uh, quarantine all that equipment immediately. 
So stop ongoing transmission potential. We plan to release that equipment if homozoology was negative, but destroy it if it turned out to be positive. Using multiple independent reviews, it turned out eight patients, looked like eight patients had had neurosurgery that might incur some risk for them for nosocomial uh, CJD transmission. However, we went from eight to multi-state pretty quickly where I did a lot of eye rolling in discovering of the many gaps we have in, in such tracking. We found that one of the two neurosurgery kits had actually been shared to another one of our large hospitals, Elliott Hospital. Um, thankfully, with investigation, um, we found no patients had had procedures using that equipment. And then this little thing came into my life. Um, and I don't know if you think it looks dangerous or, or if it looks benign, but it caused me a lot of trouble caused us, the health department, a lot of trouble. It turned out that they had used this Medtronic loaner probe. It's a passive planar blunt probe um, that the big giant Medtronic had lent to CMC for this particular procedure. And it showed that this thing, after appropriate sterilization, but not CJD appropriate sterilization, got sent to Connecticut and Massachusetts. Medtronic showed us that they had a record. This was used on five additional patients but our independent review by um, those hospitals and also those health department jurisdictions showed it had been used on other patients as well. So um, how do you communicate appropriately in this uh, condition? What are the ethics of notifying these exposed patients, even potentially exposed patients, given what I told you about tracking? So we got an ethics consult. This is an unusual place for, for us to need to do, but should we or shouldn't we? We have a low risk, but we have a uniformly fatal disease. And it's not even confirmed yet. So when do we make this notification? If we're going to make it, do we make it immediately or do we wait for the histology? It's going to take six weeks. Let that factor into you. Um, and how are we going to do it? Are we going to send them a letter, an email, uh, in person, call them? And who's going to do it? Would you perceive that CMC could have any conflict of interest in making this notification? On the other hand, would you want to be notified about something this sensitive by the health department? You know, so, so there were a lot of different things and angles to think about with this sensitive notification. We did take the decision to notify because we were aware there were institutional rumors of this mad cow disease, and we were afraid these were going to reach the patients. Um, we also had a very strong clinical suspicion based on the MRI and his clinical course, and we knew it was going to take us this six weeks. It did confirm, by the way. And you can imagine that if these patients had had neurosurgery, that they might be prone to have neurosurgery again. And therefore, we could imagine there could be ongoing public health risk if we waited those six weeks for other procedures to happen with these patients. Yeah? So I don't know if you agree or not, but here we arrived to a communication plan. It was co coordinated first and foremost among the patients. They were the priority for appropriate notification. But we had to also coordinate among the three states involving four hospitals, one of which was federal. It was a VA hospital, so that added a layer of fun. Um, and also the giant <laughs> Developed, we redeveloped, we hyperdeveloped FAQs, uh, one, one of which is shown there, because these are difficult messages to communicate at the right reading level. Patients were notified by the hospital's neurologist with a patient advocate and also a risk management administrator. We provided all the written materials that were provided and, and remained a resource to these patients. So then following this, there was a press conference and a release and a web posting. This is yet another hit to public confidence and safe healthcare delivery. So this is, these are concluding remarks then to make in the remaining five minutes before I allow your questions, which I'm eager to hear. Um, I want to ask you, what do we do when healthcare goes wrong? So from the experience that I've described from our um, uh, outbreaks in, in 2013 from Concord, um, these are, were healthcare-associated infections that largely caught my attention, at least. Um, and this is a photo from the Denver Post, uh, patients living in fear. These were, this is a patient waiting for their result uh, after they'd been tested for hepatitis C virus after exposure to David Kwiatkowski, um, our, our healthcare worker. So again, it seemed like the emperor had no clothes. Um, we had dangerous healthcare workers out. There were contaminated medications and, and then um, some kind of very dangerous equipment that might be used on you if you arrived at the hospital. Are you surprised that patients would feel fear, loss of trust, loss of control? And, and therefore, um, what, what we've learned and continue to learn and have to relearn is, is that we have to give patients and their PCPs, their trusted healthcare providers, specific actions to take to restore at least some sense of control. We don't like to, but we acknowledge uncertainty. We have to honestly admit when we don't have all the information we need. 
um, we tell how we're going to be working to learn more and to control the situation going forward. And it's sometimes hard to do, but provide a timeline to that. Um, and then really, for the scientists among us, the, the hard part in risk communication, in my mind, is acknowledging emotions. So um, patients may be entitled even to be angry. And it's OK to apologize and to express empathy when things go wrong. Um, I find the emerging literature on risk communication to patients fascinating. So here's one source that shows um, a consistent theme, which is risk communication identifies four factors that determine whether the public will perceive a messenger as trusted and credible. It's not how big your brain is. You know, it's 50% is thought to originate from whether you express empathy and caring. And I, I didn't get a lot of training in that, you know, except, except from my family. But <laughs> this is where I like to live. I like to, to, to hit the books and get on up to date and think, think, think. But, but developing this aspect of ourselves professionally is, is not always obvious in, in mechanism. So we had these notification mantras um, by way of summary. You know, how do we convey empathy? Say something like, all of us at DPHS understand that this HCV outbreak is alarming and may be frightening. Um, you also may be angry. And we saw a lot of that. I mean, I was angry. OK, so how do you explain the risk honestly without using numbers? That's a trap. So explain generally, we believe that your CJD risk from this exposure is extremely low. But we believe you also have the right to know it's probably not zero. And then how do we guide a specific response in these situations that had so much uncertainty? Um, if your symptoms increase, here's Fox News serving as an agent of public health. If your symptoms increase in this way, <laughs> press can be your friend. Um, contact your PCP and get tested. So in summary, there is a standard vocabulary and approach to outbreak investigations. Um, and, and these are often started by <coughs> clinicians such as you. Um, <clears throat> HCV, contaminated meds, and CJD-exposed equipment, these events illustrate a need for evidence-based expert response and risk communication. Um, and it's functional partnerships that strengthen our ability to provide safe health care and respond to public health threats. I hope you'll have me back in 2014 where we can talk about whatever next has come. I have no good crystal ball. Something will come, um, whether it's SARS or MERS-CoV or XDR-TB or I don't know what. But um, we're working on being prepared for that. And um, you know, if you're ready for the zombie apocalypse, you're ready for any emergency. <laughs> I again need to take an opportunity to acknowledge the people who are in the trenches and our very valued colleagues to me um, down in Concord. Certainly, uh, Jose Montero, who's the director of public health. You've probably heard him on the news and seen him many times. Um, the New Hampshire Division of Public Health Services with some standout partners to me, who's Chris Adamski, the director of disease control, Beth Daly. Um, Director of Surveillance, Stephanie Cavallo of Foodborne food born Disease, Epi, uh, Trina and Rosa, who are um, uh, healthcare-associated infection epidemiologists. This is a big role. Um, and then the incredible investigation team of public health nurses. So thanks for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Um, that, that varies. Um, we respect the jurisdictions and the authority of each state, uh, obviously, is foundational for our country. And CDC often becomes the uh, coordinator among the state jurisdictions. Um, sometimes having the CDC involved can be complicating. But, but in general, that, that is the role. And, and I would say, of course, the motivation of, of all the state jurisdictions is in the public health's best interest. So there's a great effort to work together effectively. Elizabeth, thank you. That was <coughs> fascinating. Could I come back to the, to the dog treat one? Sure. I, I, yeah. I was just trying to think through, how far do you push that? Because presumably, the human dog owners weren't eating the dog treats. They just got it on their hands. And you said that the hospitalization rate was 50%. So that means that that chicken that they bought in a food store had this strain 
that has a high hospitalization rate if you don't cook it properly. So do you actually then go all the way back to the store and to the source of the chicken to see if humans are getting this besides those who own dogs? Sure, great question. Thank you. And um, the event here in New Hampshire prompted the CDC to open the national investigation. And there are quite a number of uh, salmonella cases nationally that match our outbreak. Um, and because we came up with the answer for it, they're going back and re-interviewing cases. There is a trace back of the chicken from the large grocery store, um, which was Sam's Club. Um, and, <laughs> um, but I think that more important that you know is from Sam's Club, I think that the expectation is from um, public health that all chicken is contaminated and all turkey is contaminated and needs to be cooked appropriately. So we, we are not going to sterilize our meat short of using irradiation. So a couple of other things you made comment of, um, I, I think it's really interesting. One guy did admit he ate the jerky treat. I didn't think we should put that question on the questionnaire, but I was really surprised we got hit on it. Um, and then otherwise, we, we asked the question of how often do you wash your hands after giving your dog a dog treat? Only 16% wash their hands after giving a dog treat, and you probably are nodding your head in compliance as well. So um, there, there was a lot of interesting, but really, very common experience in, in that outbreak investigation. Does the traveler agency that represented David Bajkowski um, bear any legal uh, responsibility? They do. They're, they're under litigation. There's, there's many cases right now around this. And, and I hope I haven't um, overstepped by providing you some information that, that really has been used in the criminal investigation and will continue. This will, be go this will go on for years. But the agencies are. Um, getting scrutinized for their practices as well. Tim. It's sort of a related question. Um, you know, there were so many opportunities to catch him before he got to Exeter Hospital. And, you know, one could look at those uh, temporary agencies as a great place to stop them. But of course, they have sort of a conflict of interest with that. And also, none of the other hospitals before Exeter Hospital let Exeter Hospital know about this problem either. So clearly, there's a, a conversation problem here. Um, yes. So you could imagine there being more of a centralized um, reporting agency for problems like this. That's right. How far along are we toward that? So that was that first bullet of what's next, and, and really looking to see whether we can get some buy-in from our national partners on um, making an accessible communication for what happens when your um, anesthesiologist has DUIs and is impaired in some other hospital. Do you let them work there? So, absolutely. Um, it's it's fairly advanced and strikes me as likely to go forward that our allied healthcare professionals will be registered in a similar way as our physicians will. Feels appropriate to me. I mean, this this was so egregious. Um, the fungal. Um, contaminated medication. It, it seems to me that there's an intersection of, of two things. One is, is the compounding, but the other is um, this profusion of pain management um, centers. Yeah. And, and was, did the investigation show any um, uh, patterns of acquisition of medication? Are certain types of places more likely to buy from um, this sort of compounder as compared to other perhaps more reputable um, suppliers of medication? Well, I'm tempted to take this as a yes or no question, and the answer is yes. You know, that, that we're aware that compounded medications are provided generally because the right formulation is not available. Think pediatric um, medicines that, are, that need to be crushed up and compounded and given. But the other side of it is, is cheaper. You know, that, that, Neck could buy a gigantic block of fentanyl, you know, who knew, and, and do what they wanted to it and sell it at a much reduced rate than they could get from the FDA um, scrutinized sort of regulated industry. So if you have the proliferation of pain care centers where the population may be uninsured, heavily narcotic dependent, um, then, then this, this is the, what the mother of necessity bears out. You know, this is what happens to us. And something's broken in that system, absolutely. Um, 
So one of the issues with the lack of trust in health care is that we get blamed for things that we're not responsible for. And I'm interested, there was a report recently about C. diff that's always assumed to be nosocomially acquired. Actually, I think it was 50, 60 percent of the strains that patients had, um, they brought with them to the hospital. You'll remember the reference better than I, but I, I guess it's more of a comment than a question, but the I think we lead people to believe that things are safer than they are and that then we can really provide and then they're very disappointed and somehow we have to make people's expectations realistic uh, about the well, safety of hospitals. Well, of course I agree with you, um, but, but I have some hesitation also is that we are in a culture where we do tolerate nosocomial transmission of diseases and, and is it a boiling frog phenomenon where we're just that, that's the way healthcare is, but does it have to be? You know, I think that we are learning a great deal of how to enforce flu vaccination, enforce um, hand washing, and, and do better education for some of the things that are going to reduce the one time or eliminate the one time where the healthcare worker transmits between patients in our ICU. You know, I think every event of nosocomial transmission of disease is tragic. Yes, we expect it in some ways, knowing what we do about what those trenches look like. And, and what's going on in our communities as well. So uh, there's, there's, it's a good comment, and then, of course, there's no answer. Um, could you just describe what's happening now with compounded pharmacies, um, both in New Hampshire and, and nationally? Yeah. Well, it's a success, it is a success story to, to me. I think that um, the good that has come out of this is expanded regulatory capacity for the Board of Pharmacy. And we are making very regular visits now to our compounding pharmacies and um, trying to establish a um, standard approach to sterile production of medications in settings that have been strangely under the radar for their entire existence. So, so there's a lot changing in that regard. Yeah, sure. Um, with regards to the environment, uh, I found myself looking at this literature closely, and, and iatrogenic CJD has not occurred except through some of these, you know, remarkably invasive kind of things. So we weren't concerned about the actual neurosurgical suite, and, and had to do the communication to healthcare workers who were concerned. I mean, the hospice workers, everybody was concerned. But, but that's not how it's been transmitted in, in past events. Um, with regards to what we should be doing around our um, neurosurgical equipment is um, there, there's a whole policy on how, when we have a patient who has an undiagnosed dementing illness, uh, those equipment should be dedicated and quarantined until the patient's diagnosis is made. You know, that's, so that was a missed op in, in what I've described <coughs> here. Um, if, if that slips through, as in the case here, the equipment can be bleached under very aggressive conditions that generally destroy the delicate neurosurgical instrument. So the hospital elected just to destroy because um, they, the, the sterilization method that's appropriate probably would have killed them anyway. Lisa, we'll let you have a last question. Oh, thanks. Um, you talk a little bit about some of the patient responses to being informed about their potential exposure from the outbreak, and of course, um, involve anger and perhaps eroding, further eroding of um, their faith in the American healthcare system. I guess the eternal optimist would want to know is there ever any applause or praise for the incredibly comprehensive investigative work that the public health department did anyone ever thank you? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your question, of course, and, and yes, blame will fly everywhere, you know, and we're, we're the, the agents of bad news, but not perps necessarily, but, but we also have some role in, in legislation and, and regulation, et cetera. Um, I don't know exactly where to take your concern. I, I don't want to end on the bad note, but may, maybe many of you are aware that this was the first time in New Hampshire history that we were sued 
um, by Exeter Hospital, by, you know, by anyone, but Exeter Hospital elected to sue us for the um, exuberant medical record review that we felt was necessary for the hepatitis C virus outbreak investigation. So we all lived under this horrible, um, you know, shadow of we're, we're, we're going to court over this and, and the health department um, has to set a precedent of it, how, how do HIPAA and public health interface? There, there is no HIPAA for public. I mean, we, we have the authority, the jurisdiction HIPAA. It's written in that we review these records when the public health is at risk, right? So, so this was a very unfortunate place, and especially for Sharon, who, who represented the state in, in court. But we all were um, part of it and questioned and had everything requisitioned and to, to be called not a partner but a perpetrator ourself of, of a breach of the public trust was very sobering for all of us. So um, I, I hope that in summary that, that this group might not sue us ever. <laughs> um, but you know, might, might see emerging partnerships and the places where we intersect and, and the very much stronger provision of clinical health that you can provide and the public health that we can provide through this partnership. So. Well, not only do we not want to sue you, we want to thank you. <laughs>